Morning, Door Creek. It is good to be together with you today. If you're a guest, welcome. My name's Mark, one of the pastors here. And um, we've just come back from a very kind of crazy break. Um, I take a summer break for study and a little relaxation with family. And when we left, little Henry, our first grandchild, our grandson, was uh, very much on our mind. Remember, he had all these crazy heart issues, and we've been praying, you've been praying, and God's been doing all these amazing things. Last we knew, the hole in his heart was too big for anything but surgery. But since we were together, they went back to the docs and said, you know what? It actually is getting smaller. He's not going to need surgery. So thank you, God. Yay. So at the end of May, I, my last message here was in Job. And we did like three weeks, remember, in Job. And um, I remember saying to Lori the week after, or the day after preaching, um, I said, you know, I kind of hate preaching these series on suffering and the storms of life because I always feel like something is going to just break out in somebody's world and God was using the scripture to prepare him for that. And I said, just, I wonder who, I wonder who this time. Not having a clue, wonder who was you, Mark, and your daughter, Claire. So we have five kids. And our middle daughter, Claire, is 26. She lives with her sister, Bridget, up in Minneapolis. And right before we left up for Door County, Claire let us know that they'd found a lump on her breast and they wanted her to get a, a, an ultrasound. And so she got an ultrasound and they saw a large tumor. And they said, we got to get it out right away. The next day, she had surgery. They removed a six-inch phyllodes tumor. Phyllodes tumors are like rare, rare, rare. Two in a million women would have this kind of tumor. They said the good news is phyllodes tumors don't go into the lymph nodes. The good news is uh, phyllodes tumors are 95% benign. And I remember saying to Lori something like, well, those statistics only work if you're on the right side of those statistics right? So, but you know, you're just kind of assuming, okay, it's going to be benign. It's, it's already pretty, like, unbelievably traumatic. So we're up in Door County, and uh, Claire calls us. She said, I just found out it's malignant. And I, I can see where Lori was standing. It's just, it's just like her knees buckled and almost dropped to the floor. She couldn't believe it. And so uh, she was going to need more surgery, and um, they did a scan to make sure that it hadn't gone anywhere else in her body, and that was clear. And then she had a major surgery a couple weeks ago, and they told us they got clear margins, which is good. And, uh, and she had a radical mastectomy, 26-year-old daughter. And then in two weeks, she begins a month or six weeks of radiation. And so it's been really surreal and what's been very real is God's faithfulness and his goodness and just seeing how Claire has been really strengthened by your prayers and friends and family's prayers around in her life. Um, and yet there's been this kind of overwhelming as parents, this sense of sadness, you know, that one of your kids is going through something like that. So uh, Claire's brave and strong. So Claire's our artist daughter. So if you didn't know it, she's like the, the Genesis panels in that back stairwell, the rooted painting, she's a painter. Um, Claire says, tell Dad, tell people not to stop praying. 
because I'm really riding on those prayers. So thank you, thank you, thank you. So, you know, in God's providence, I had this time off, and we thought we were going to be up in Door County doing all these things, and we ended up spending time, you know, in Minneapolis, and that was a good thing. So I've been excited to come back. You might think I'd be excited just to stay back, but I, I really was excited to come back and to join you in the work that God is calling us to do in this place. And it's already been a really exciting summer. I don't know if you know what's going on, but thanks to your just generosity, thanks to, for your prayers, for serving, we've had some exciting ministries. In student ministries alone, I think about uh, a great outreach they had earlier, and it was called Color Wars. I don't really know what Color Wars is, but I love it. I'm not sure who wins in Color Wars, but uh, it was a great outreach. 16 of our students went out to Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota, working in Red Cloud Indian School, and they had a great week of ministry there. Just a couple weeks ago, we hosted two different soccer camps, Chicago Eagles, these young collegiate soccer players that love Jesus from around the country. We're just building into our kids. 130 kids at the two camps, more of the coaches going to help out in uh, Sylvania Camp Tuesday, and we saw 12 of those kids give their lives in faith to, tr to Jesus Christ. And so that's just so great, so great. And then through Rooted, we were able to give uh, little mini libraries to each grade level at the school there in DeForest, Eagle Point. Uh, in just a few weeks here, we've got a team of high school and collegians going to our ministry partners' um, Mission of Hope in Haiti. And then we're going to have 40 junior high kids, middle schoolers, canvassing Madison, serving around our city with partners and then we'll finish off the summer with a great serve day in the Mendota block party and just leaning into our partner schools. And so it's an exciting time, and I want to thank you for being part of that. So just an update, Leadership Live, to give you an update on where we're at with the year-end coming up real close. So we finish out our ministry year August 31st, not December 31st. So it's not unusual for giving to kind of wane a little bit at the end of spring and early summer, and that's where we're at. We've got a little bit to go here, about $500,000 needed to finish out the year and what it, we anticipate being needed in July and August. So thanks for giving towards that. Here's a good thing to remember, because we're all coming and going, right? It's summer. That a, a way you can connect with the ministries financially is online, and a lot of people do that. And I just want to recommend that to you, if that would help. Well, let's pray as we begin our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We would say with Moses, it's not an idle word. It's not an insignificant thing. It's not a marginal thing. It is our life. It gives us life as it teaches us, as it corrects us, as it trains us what it looks like to love you with all of our heart and our neighbor as ourself. And so, Holy Spirit, use your word in my heart. And through my words, Lord, may they encourage and equip and strengthen us to be more like your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So, uh, grab your Bible. Ecclesiastes is where we are going to be hanging out. Ecclesiastes is in the middle of our Bibles. It's just after Proverbs. You can find it in your table of contents if you're new to the Bible. 
he's got a theme, and it's going to be repeated like 38 times. It's going to be repeated. And it picks it up, this theme, in verse 2. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, could be translated the preacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now, the writer of Ecclesiastes, who I understand to be none other than King Solomon, David's son, his only son that actually ever ascended to the throne, is asking us to consider the meaning of life and to examine the things that we look to to give us a sense of meaning and purpose and significance and where we can find satisfaction. He's not answering the question, is there life after death? Actually, he's wrestling with the question, is there life before death? Okay? Is there significance? And so he's going to spend a lot of time just camping out on the things that we typically turn to for meaning and significance and satisfaction and say, look, I've tried those things. They're not the thing that brings what you're longing for. So this theme, meaninglessness, we'll find it throughout life and in the arts, in the great novels and the epics, and, and even in a comedy like City Slickers. So Billy Crystal plays the part of this man who's in midlife crisis. Life seems to have let him down. Work no longer satisfies. It's career day at his fourth grade son's class. And so he goes and he's waxing eloquent philosophically, if you will, with the kids as he stands up. He says, kids, he says, kids, value this time in your life. This time in your life is when you have choices and it goes by so fast. When you're a teenager, you think you can do anything, and you do. Your 20s are a blur. In your 30s, you make a little money, raise a family, and one wonder, what happened to my 20s? In your 40s, you grow a pot belly and another chin. <laughs> the music starts to get too loud, and one of your old girlfriends becomes a grandmother. In your 50s, you have minor surgery, and they call it a procedure. In your 60s, you have major surgery, and the music is still loud, but that doesn't matter because you can no longer hear it. In your 70s, you and your wife move to Florida, and you start having dinner at 2 in the afternoon, <laughs> lunch at 10 in the morning, and breakfast the night before. <laughs> You spend most of your time wandering around the mall looking for the latest and greatest ultimate low-fat yogurt and muttering, how come the kids don't call anymore? <laughs> In your 80s, you have a major stroke, and you end up babbling to a nurse whom your wife can't stand, but you end up calling mama. <laughs> and you know, we need a little humor, because when you jump into Ecclesiastes, there's not a lot of humor. I mean, it's really depressing. Because what he's not going to do is shout the answer. What he's going to do repeatedly is say, it's not this. It's not this. It's not this. Why is he doing that? Well, on the one hand, we say, because he tried all those things. On the other hand, this book is a great gift to us because God knows, Solomon knew, that 
these are the things that so easily trick us into thinking, maybe that's where I can find it. Maybe it's in this I can find it. That didn't work, but I'm going to try. And he just keeps going over and over again, saying it, it's not in these things. So what I understand here is Ecclesiastes is a book that he writes at the end of his life. This one who started so well. Remember King Solomon, God says, what do you want? What do you do? And ask anything you want, and I'll give it to you. He didn't ask for riches. He didn't ask for fame. He asked for wisdom. God, give me wisdom that I might lead these people well. And God said, great request, and I'm going to give you riches, and I'm going to give you fame, and all the other things you could ask for. And he starts so well, but he loses his way. One of the things we know is he's got 700 wives. Are you kidding me? 300 concubines in his harem. And it says that these women from all these different countries that had these different gods led his heart astray, and he loses his way. And what we have here is he's come full circle, and he wants to share what he's learned as he's done his life on this twisted, broken planet. He's going to talk about this phrase, life under the sun. He's not geographically talking about this earth. He's actually metaphorically describing a, a perspective, a worldview of doing life under the sun means without God in your life. He, he is sidebarred, sidelined. We're not looking to God. We may believe in God, but functionally, we're functioning as atheists because God's not in the equation. A pursuit of God is not how we think we're going to find meaning and significance and satisfaction in this life. And he says, life without God, life under the sun is meaningless. And this is going to be repeated and repeated 38 times, that phrase meaningless, and under the sun concept some 30 times. And so he wants us to smell it. He wants us to taste and feel the emptiness of pursuing life without God. Ernest Hemingway knew about the emptiness of life, not just how he ended his life, but he said this at one point. Here's the quote, Life is a dirty trick, a short journey from nothingness to nothingness. So what he's going to do here, he's going to say, here's my thesis. Life without God is meaningless. And that word meaningless here speaks of a vapor of a breath. So think about your breath on a cold October morning where you go, right? And it's there and it's gone. It says, life is like that. It, it speaks metaphorically of the futility of life, of the fleeting nature of life, of how it's so short. And so he's going to drive home this thesis and back it up. Today in chapters 1 and 2, he's going he's to say, Exhibit A, life is meaningless because work is meaningless. He's going to say life is meaningless because intellectual pursuit and wisdom and knowledge is meaningless. Exhibit 3, life is meaningless because pleasure and seeking pleasure is meaningless. All right? That's where we're going. 
So we'll begin with this whole concept of work. We pick it up in chapter 1, verse 3. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again, right? All things are wearisome. More than one can say, the eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations. And even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who followed them. He says, work is meaningless. Leonard Wolfe, husband of Virginia Woolf, the, the British author, he was a civil servant and author, founder of this Bloomsbury group, was with this group of intellectuals that were kind of charting the way for British modernism in the early 20th century. Powerful group. And he said this, I see clearly that I've achieved practically nothing. The world today and the history of the human anthill, nice description for this world, during the past five to seven years would be exactly the same as it is if I had played ping pong instead of sitting on committees and writing books and writing memorandas. I've therefore to make a rather ignominious confession that I must have in a long life ground through between 150 and 200,000 hours of perfectly useless work. So do you know this, that 30% of our waking hours are spent at work. And you're going, don't remind me, it's Sunday. <laughs> and we know the statistics of how many people actually get excited to go to work tomorrow. Not that many. Not that many. Says, work, work, you know, we're working so hard, and, and yet it, it doesn't bring change. Nothing changes. The sun still goes up and down. The wind's still rotating in its courses. And, and the water cycles happen. And, and you know what? And we die. A generation comes and a generation goes. He picks up the theme of work in chapter 2, verse 17. And he talks about it's grievous. That, that is, it's bad, it's not just hard, it even has these evil components to it. He said trying to find the meaning of life through work is like chasing after the wind. You just can't do it. And he says, one of the things I hate about work is you work so hard to amass these things, and then at the end of the day, you're going to die, and everything you worked hard for, you got to give it to somebody else. And what are they going to do with it? They may just waste it. They may not steward it. You're going to wake up in the middle of the night because it's going to cause you anxiety and worry. Ever happened to you? Yeah. He says, not work. Not work. Well, what about wisdom? Chapter 1, verse 12. 
I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking or deficient cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and of folly, but I learned that this too is chasing after the wind, for with much wisdom comes much, not knowledge and power, but sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. He says, look, wisdom is limited. We can know all these things, and we realize there's so much we don't know. You can have a PhD, and you realize, man, anybody who's got a PhD will tell you, man, it's so small. What I have expertise in, I know, you think I know everything about astrophysics. I know some things about a very small thing. And the more I learn about the small thing, the more I know I don't know. And the more I don't know about the bigger area, and that's just in my discipline. And then the more you know, the more you know about the brokenness of this world and of life and the things that don't make sense, the mysteries and the enigmas. And you know that even though what I know is broken, my knowledge isn't enough to fix it and make it straight. I don't have the knowledge to, to add to the deficiencies to make it whole. It's this elusive thing where it's like trying to chase the wind and capturing it. Moody Blues sang the song, Why Do We Never Get an Answer When We're Knocking at the Door? With a thousand million questions about hate and death and war. It's not in work. It's not in wisdom and knowledge and intellectual pursuits. The third exhibit he pulls forward for us is in chapter 2 and it's pleasure i said to myself verse 1 come now i will test you with pleasure to find out what is good but that also proved to be meaningless laughter i said is madness and what does pleasure accomplish i tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly my mind still guiding me with wisdom i wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well the delights of man's heart. And in my limited mind, I'm thinking of Versailles. Have you been to Versailles? Oh, my word. It's just this magnificent palace in Paris. And I'm going, man, this guy, this was just unbelievable. He did all that. No, he didn't build Versailles, just so you know. <laughs> but he did it in Jerusalem, something like it, right? Verse 9, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. We're talking about hedonism on steroids. <laughs> anything I saw, anything I want, I, I, I didn't deny it. 
I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. And some of us are on this pursuit. We're on this chase. We're believing the lie that, oh, yes, you know, it's going to be different for me. Some of us are looking back now and going, wow, this, this isn't what I thought it was going to do and bring. Tom Brady, after his third Super Bowl, he now has five. He's got more awards and MVPs and Super Bowl MVPs and passing records and all of this. At the, a, after the third Super Bowl, he does an interview with Steve Croft in 60 Minutes. And he's getting at this whole thing of, man, I'm achieving all my dreams, but there's got to be something more. He says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it's all about. I, I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me? I think it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't. This can't be all it's cracked up to be. So Steve Croft presses Brady as to what the right answer was. And Brady responds, what's the answer? Man, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. So if we can't find meaning and significance, right, satisfaction, security in these kinds of things, wh where do we turn? Where do we turn? Well, he gives us a hint at the end of chapter 2, verse 24. A person could do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil, in their work. Well, wait a minute. I thought you just said work is meaningless. I thought you just said it's going to always disappoint. So that's where we get as we're reading Ecclesiastes, we've got we to gotta understand that phrase. What he's talking about is pursuing work without God and thinking it can function in a way that only God can, turning this gift of God work, actually work as a gift. We're not strumming harps on a cloud in heaven. We're going to have meaningful, exciting work, and you're never going to need disability insurance. <laughs> Amen? He, he says, yeah, pursuing work to the ultimate to, to have, have you have an understanding of this is why I'm here and this is where I find meaning and purpose and satisfaction and significance in my work. No, under the sun, doing that without God, it won't. But you can find satisfaction, he says, and how is that? Ah, this too I see is from the hand of God. So all of a sudden now God's in the picture, right? Verse 25, for without him, without God, who can eat or find enjoyment? He's saying, you're looking for joy, you're looking for satisfaction, you're longing for this peace and contentment, you're looking for something that's going to deeply satisfy. Oh, that's from God. That's in God. To the person who pleases him, verse 26, God gives wisdom, knowledge, 
and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So he's hinting at his conclusion, and he'll drop the hints in several places going through this book, and then he sums up the conclusion. So turn there to the very end of the book, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. And here's his conclusion. Now all's been heard. You've heard me telling you over and over again. Now, all's been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Here's the answer to where we can find meaning and significance and satisfaction in this twisted, broken world. It's in our relationship with God. Fear God. So fear God, remember, is this phrase that we get in the Old Testament, especially in wisdom literature. He's not saying be afraid of God, but there is an element of that. It's in that reverent posture. So fearing God is seeing God for who He is and responding accordingly, rightly, in reverent, affectionate, humble obedience. So fear God is the Old Testament language of trust God, believe God. Live in relationship with God. So here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the duty, not a duty. It is the duty of all mankind. It is the thing, the main thing. And from that relationship, all the other things fall into its right place. For God, verse 14, will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. So what is he saying here? So how did he start out was that phrase? Verse 2, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. And as you start to think about life and the enigmas and mysteries of life and the sad realities that it doesn't matter how rich we are, how smart we are, doesn't even matter how old we are. Death is going to catch us, chapter 9, verse 12, like a fish caught in a net. We're going to die. And it's so easy to conclude, it's just a waste. All I am is dust in the wind. I've tried, I've tried, but I can't get none of it, right? No satisfaction in it. It's just a waste. It's meaningless. It's futile. It, it just doesn't add up and it leads you to this kind of despondent despair and all of a sudden at the end in a surprising way as he talks about everything that we do is going to be reviewed by God the hidden things <laughs> the things that are out there and so actually he's saying everything does matter because there is a God and we answer to him but that, that, that could lead you in despair if we don't know the rest of the storyline. And so the rest of the storyline works out how it is that we come into this relationship with God. It's through His Son, Jesus Christ, who says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, and no one comes into this relationship with God apart from me. I'm the one who came not to condemn you, 
but I've come to save you, to save you from your badness and to save you from your goodness. What do I mean? From your pride. Where we think, I don't need, I don't need Jesus' death on the cross because I'm doing the work. And last I checked, I'm doing pretty good. I think I'm running a high B right now, and I think I can get an A. He saves us from that, from our pride and from our stubborn rebelliousness. And it's at the cross that we come to understanding God's love for us. So we're going to sing in just a bit. He'll never let you down. As we were singing it in the service before, I'm going, the reason we can have conviction that God is going to never let us down is because Jesus didn't get down off the cross when he could have. He could have. He could have said, this is craziness. I created this whole thing. I am perfect, blameless son of God, and I've had it with the spitting. I've had it with the mocking. I've had it with the suffering and the bogus trial. I've had it. I've had it. I'm done. Angels, clean it up. But he stayed. He stayed to take that which is twisted in my life. Straighten me out, and he's still working on that. And one day it'll be straight, not just in my life, but in this world. And so we make sense about life in this world through a relationship with God that is made possible through Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross, and we live in the shadow of the cross. And let the cross remind us that we are loved, that we have significance that we have meaning and purpose because he's not just saved us from things, he saved us to things, to himself, to his family, and to his work in this world where he says, I am making all things new, all things new, and he wants us to be part of it, of bringing his kingdom here on earth in the lives of young kids like the kids at the soccer camp and our high school students whose lives are being transformed as they travel the world and serve right here in this city. Make all things new. Behold, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things are past. All things, all things, all things new. We're creating Christ Jesus for a purpose, to do the good works that he's called us in advance for us to do. And so meaning and significance and satisfaction are found in Christ. And if we're going to get it right in this world, we've got to live in the shadow of the cross. We've got to keep our eye on the cross because that keeps us sane when the reality of the twistedness of this world could break us apart and cause us to lose our way. Do you have that understanding today that you are loved by God? That there is no greater thing that could give you stability today? Do you understand how Jesus wants to transform the monotony, maybe the drudgery, maybe the just excruciating difficulty of your job right now? And say, look, this isn't, it's not about you. It's about me, and I'm coming to work with you tomorrow, and you're going to serve me. I know you're just going to get up and do the same things, but if you do tomorrow with me, then all the things that you typically do, like hitting the snooze and taking your shower and eating your breakfast and driving to work and punching out and going to eat dinner and watching some TV and going to bed, it's going to be transformed because you're going to do your work heartily as unto me. 
And whether you eat or drink, you can do all things to what? The glory of God. See, it transforms. It doesn't mean that we don't bump into brokenness. It doesn't mean that we don't have sad news that a 26-year-old daughter has cancer. But what it means is you have the hope of Christ, you have the wisdom of Christ, you have the peace of Christ that goes deep, transcends human understanding. So how are we going to live a life this week? What are we chasing right now in this world? To bring the things that only... Work is a good thing. Wisdom and knowledge is a good thing. Pleasure. The Bible says at Christ's right hand, at God's right hand where Christ is seated, right, our, our pleasures forever. God has all the pleasures. But if we make pleasure seeking the ultimate, if we make work the ultimate, if we make our intellect and our academic pursuits the ultimate, they are going to ultimately disappoint us and leave us wanting for more. And some of us are there living life under the sun. And someone says, wake up. Wake up to a God who's good, to a God who loves you. And if you keep your eye on the cross, you'll never doubt it. So find yourself strong in him, growing to be satisfied in him, gaining wisdom from him that the world and our finite minds cannot give. That we might live lives that make a hungry world go. I need Jesus. I want Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do need you. And we love you. And we confess. We just chase the wrong things. And forgive us. Forgive us. Forgive us for having work upside down. For making work about ourselves instead of about you. Forgive us for thinking these things actually could bring us pleasure when ultimately they just get us addicted. Forgive us for our pride in thinking we know so much when we know so very little. Lord, grant faith to someone who's doing life under the sun without you and grant a faith that has them turning to you for all that you would give them. And may we be a church that keeps this duty our primary duty, to live in faith with you and to keep Jesus the main thing of our lives, of our church, and all that we do in life. Until you come or call us home, this is our prayer. In Christ's name, amen.